Welcome to the Old Pass Podcast. My name is Benjamin Hicks, and I am here today joined by two of my guests by the name of Michael Spangler and Cody Justice. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm good. Thank you, Benjamin. And you, Cody, how about yourself? I'm doing well, brother. Got a belly full of dinner, ready to get to the topic this evening. Wonderful. Well, today we are addressing an issue of um, politics. And as uh, you may be uh, aware, if you're following discussions about the intersection of faith and political engagement in uh, social media today, or if you've been even attuned to some of the crisis uh, that we observe in our culture today, you might be a Christian who's listening, and you are trying to grapple with issues of conscience as it concerns uh, our political structures and how the Bible bears upon that. And this is a, a subject where I think uh, we can all understand that there are um, differences in the church today. Um, but I think we should also recognize that God has not withheld sufficient light and grace from his word on this matter so that we can advance the discussion forward. Certainly when we look at our society and we see the growth of ungodly and unbiblical ideologies, when we see the breakdown of family and morality and the denigration of human life and really so many ways in which the whole uh, apparatus of the state is used against the church and Christianity and Christians in particular. I think every one of us is confronted with weighty uh, questions in this area. And uh, so we're going to be approaching this from a particular vantage point. We are going to be challenging something that you listeners may have never uh, considered or may have taken for granted or may actually disagree with us about, but it has to do with the role of pluralism, specifically religious pluralism, when we consider issues of politics, political science or political theory, and particularly political ethics. Uh, and of course, speaking as Christians, we are wanting to be faithful to the word of Christ on this matter. What do we make of religious pluralism now uh cody i'm going to put you on on the spot a little bit when you think about uh religious pluralism what do you think most people think about how how do they um relate to those words and what do they mean well i suppose it depends on the person i would think that there are people who maybe are not familiar with the term at all. And so they would have no idea um, what you're talking about. There may be also other people <clears throat> who have a, a positive conception of the idea. I could certainly see that where they may associate it with uh, religious liberty, where you can have a number of religions all equally valid in the public square, Christianity, Islam, atheism, or irreligion. Uh, those are the two immediate things that come to mind. But I mean, I think if we take the definition in its actual meaning, then we know that this is a sinful thing. This is an ungodly thing. This is not a Christian uh, position because we say there is one God, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, uh, Jesus Christ, and there are no other gods. <clears throat> There's only one true religion, the Christian religion, and so there cannot therefore be uh, pluralism or plurality uh, of religion. Yeah, that, that's very helpful, uh, Cody. Now, Michael, um, someone uh, may listen to what Cody just said, and they may be wanting to draw a distinction so we may want to distinguish, for example, a theological liberal or a, a progressive um, sort of Christian approach 
which is really coming from a position of unbelief, wherein all religions are equally valid, all religions can bring you to God or bring you to heaven, as it were. That on the one hand. On the other hand, there may be those who say, no, I'm a theological conservative. I believe the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to heaven. And yet at the same time, I, I believe that in the political sphere, there is such a thing as uh, a pluralistic um, uh, ethic. There is such a thing as a valid warrant for tolerating uh, religions that we know to be false within the public sphere. And people, I suppose, from that vantage point, would have a right to practice false religion. And would you agree with me, Michael, that that is a very common uh, idea, even among Reformed churches today? Yes, it's very common. And um, yeah, do you what, what do you think about this difference between those two? Is there um, you I would you I, I suppose you would agree there is a difference, but would you say that the latter point of view is a consistent approach? Well, I'm thankful that someone's not a theological liberal. Mm -hmm. At least we're speaking on the same terms. We can come to the Bible and both recognize it's the word of God. And thank God. With those people, then I would take them to the very word of God and ask them, what does the Bible say that the civil magistrate is? And the clearest passage for that is Romans 13, where it says that he is a minister of God to thee, to the church, for good. Now, many abuse Romans 13, but the plain meaning of those words is that the civil magistrate is a minister of God hmm. and that he's a minister of God for the good of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, now, now let me stop here, Michael. Do you mean to say that you don't take that verse to mean that whatever the government may be doing, that is, uh, that is the will of God for us, right? Because I have heard some people argue this, right? That when we say that uh, Romans 13 is speaking about uh, the powers that be or ordained of God, what that is saying is that whether you live in communist North Korea or whether you live in Saudi Arabia under Sharia law or whether you're living in pluralistic America or Canada, those are all expressions of God's will and they are to be submitted to as, as such. How would you respond to that? Well, of course, there are expressions of God's decree of will. He brought it to pass. But that doesn't mean that they please God. They're not expressions of his moral will. Government is not God. Man is not God. God does put these men in as ministers, but that very word minister shows that they're subordinate. The minister can't minister something that he's not given to minister. Consider what Paul goes on to say. Verse 4 that he's the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And then it says this, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Well, wrath and evil assume that these are things that displease God. Well, a government that actually suppresses good things, like that persecutes Christians or that promotes perversion as our government does is clearly not doing its job the passage does speak to us of submission but it speaks as plainly of the duties of the government itself and therefore limits the terms of those submission that submission we submit to them as their ministers of god but to argue that when a government imposes unjust laws that it is being a minister of god is not present in the text and it actually imputes god with with wrong because to even assert, even to make it sound like that a, a minister of God as such could minister evil things, that that's not right. Uh, verse 5 says conscience. I read that. Who's the only Lord of the conscience? Most Christians know that answer. God. How can I submit it for conscience sake to a rule that didn't come from God? That, that's not right. 
I think that I think what you're what you're raising, Michael, is exactly the the crux of the issue. So I want to do two things. One is I want to quote a prominent um, theologian from the Presbyterian tradition by the name of Samuel Rutherford. I'm going to quote it, what he says about Romans 13 in his book Lex Rex, which is um, uh, Latin for saying the law is king. And he was seeking to stand for this principle that you're standing, that you're also articulating. So let me, let me quote here. He says this, I lay down this maxim of divinity, or this principle of theology, we could say. Tyranny being a work of Satan is not from God, because sin, either habitual or actual, is not from God. The power that is must be from God. The magistrate as magistrate is good in nature of office. And the intrinsic end of his office, Romans 13, 4, for he is the minister of God for thy good. And therefore, a power ethical, political, or moral to oppress is not from God and is not a power. The licentious deviation of a power and is no more from God, but from sinful nature and the old serpent than a license to sin. So I think that uh, it's pretty clear to me that uh, what Michael was saying and what uh, Sam Rutherford was saying are pretty compatible. Um, before I, I quote something else here, uh, can I uh, just ask Cody, do you have any comments on, on what we've just said there? I would just add that if he's God's minister, that that means it is a good, wholesome office. Paul says it is good to desire the office of a bishop or of an elder in the church. Well, surely we could say it is good if a man desires the office of a magistrate, especially uh, if he wants to attain that office so as to have power to wield it for the church, just as the Lord has said. Thomas Cartwright, another Presbyterian, uh, says this in his systematic. He says magistrates are the special duties and lieutenants of God here upon the earth even calvin has something that might be is a quote that may be startling to us today but i don't think it needs to be if we understand the bible and some other things he says in his institutes civil authority is in the sight of god not only sacred and lawful but the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all stations in mortal life psalm 82 likens the magistrate to god I said, ye are gods. But when they're not upholding justice, they're not actually upholding their office, which is, in a sense, to manifest God upon the earth. One more thing. Um, Michael has raised Romans 13. This is the classic text. If we could just go back briefly to the previous chapter, it's relevant, gives us a little bit more. He says in chapter 12, verse 19, Paul speaking to individuals in the church, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. How does God repay? Through the magistrate. Through the magistrate. That's how. He is God's instrument of vengeance in the world. And when he's not doing that, He's not upholding his office. And I would just say, too, it's not an abstraction. He's to execute justice against persons, evildoers. And we need to reckon with that. We need to love that because it's good. It's what God has ordained. Thank you, Cody. Very helpful. Now, uh, obviously, we, we've been quoting some Reformed theologians, but we also understand that um, when we talk about Reformed theology, there is a higher, le higher level of um, precedence given to our confessional documents because this or that Reformed theologian may have their private opinions. At the same time, when we talk about the Reformed confessions, we're talking about those things which the Reformed churches uh, corporately and jointly have confessed. And what I'd like to do is um, look at two confessional documents that speak to this. First, the Belgic Confession. And Michael, if you have the Westminster Confession, maybe I'll ask you to bring that up while I read um, 
from Belgian Confession, Article 36. So uh, this is referring to the magistrates, and this is what the Belgian Confession says. We believe that our gracious God, because of the depravity of mankind, have appointed kings, princes, and magistrates willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of man might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose, he had invested the magistrate with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry, thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. And much else very useful and beneficial there, but that really is the portion that is more contested today. So my denomination, the Pre-Reformed Churches, still holds to the original Belgic Confession, but some other uh, federations of churches in the Reformed tradition have felt constrained to remove that section in particular, where it says that the civil magistrate has the uh, prerogative and indeed responsibility to remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. I wonder if uh, you have the original Westminster Confession up there, Michael. Do you have that? Yes, I do. And it's excellent on this, too. I've sent it to people as a summary of this issue. What you read from the Belgic was excellent, though. I'm very, I'm very pleased to be reminded of that. Uh, chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this is the original, as in the Dutch churches. The American churches of Pres Presbyterians have edited their confession. Unfortunately, I think they edited it in a way that that makes it more clearly opposed to the original. From what I gather, the edited Belgic just leaves things out, but we've added a few things in America. And that makes it very hard for men with my own convictions to even subscribe to American Presbyterian documents because I think they've now say things that are incorrect. But I'm gonna read the original written by the Westminster Assembly. Just chat, uh, paragraph three of chapter 23. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Note, that's a distinction. It's not the church is not the state. The state is not the church and cannot take away church authority. Yet, he hath authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. It goes on to speak of even calling synods for this end. And it gives her all of these compelling scripture proofs which we won't have time to talk about at length tonight, but I'm sure some of them will come up later. Yes. Thank you for that, Michael. And it, it is a striking thing how it is that um, what was once, as far as I can tell, unanimously held by our Puritan and Covenanter uh, fathers, and also in Holland and England and in Scotland, over time in... in uh, North America, but later on also in other contexts as well, this has been either denied or revised or or otherwise reconsidered. And uh, it is likely that many people in our audience who are otherwise like-minded with us may be concerned that there was something about that time period which led them to conclusions which were unbiblical. And um, I think that our, our Christian audience would agree with us at this far, which is that if we could prove that what we're saying is biblical, then we have to subscribe to it and accept it for that reason. God's word does not err. And so I think 
our, our Christian audience would go with us that far. So understanding that we can't cover exhaustively every scriptural proof, um, Cody, I know we've been talking about um, Romans 13 in particular as a key text where on the surface it seems to give a lot of plausibility to the reform position. But what would be a text that you may go to, Cody, if you were going to vindicate the confessional reform position that was historically uh, articulated? Well, the other passage that, uh, I mean, is essentially a parallel, so you could bring in the second witness. Uh, it comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 13 and following. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, sent by who? That is by God for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. He is essentially saying the exact same thing as Paul, but we don't even necessarily um, need an express proof text when we understand the law, God's law, and how he set up the world. Once we understand that, we understand that all men are religious by nature, and there needs to be peace and order, the common good, upheld. Then it's really a no-brainer, I think, if you start thinking of it that way, when you understand, okay, power is a real thing. God's created the world with power, so those with power ought to use it unto good ends. If the magistrate has some of the most supreme power in the world, is he not then to use it for good? Yes. And oh, may, I, may I interrupt here? Go ahead, I Michael. think there's, there's something we've assumed here, I rank rightly, but it's worth stating, that it is good to defend the church of Jesus Christ and that people who openly oppose the Christian religion are included in this word evildoers that the civil magistrate is supposed to punish. Now that's worth proving. And I don't think we have to go further than the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me to prove it. I, I fully uh, agree with that, Michael. And let's, let's back up a moment, right? So when we're thinking about religious pluralism and we're talking about people who've accepted that principle, it seems to me that what they're going to have to argue is that in religious affairs, the state should be neutral, that government policy and government power should be neutral as it concerns things of the worship of God. And so what you've said is that well, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, written by the finger of God in tablets of stone, precisely because it never changes. It's a reflection of his eternal character. It's a reflection of those things which are binding on every human being, every time and every place. And yet you think about the first four commandments, thou know the God before me, shall not make a graven image, shall not take the Lord's name in vain, honor keep the sabbath day holy and there you have the the who of worship the how of worship the manner of worship or the spirit of worship and the the time of worship we could say and to me it's a glaring hole in the pluralist position that they could say that in some way the moral law does not bear upon something as important as the civil magistrate and, and state power in general. Um, can, can either of you think of what would be an argument that perhaps a, uh, a religious pluralist might use to evade that basic consideration? I can, I can think of one. Um, that's not kind. Mm-hmm. Just imagine it. That's not kind. That's not Christian. That's not loving. 
why why do people say that because they're ignorant and they're uninstructed in the law of god and they don't understand these things thus this is part of our this is part of our problems it's almost an unstated assumption that religion is merely a private matter and it has no public relation in fact it is taboo it is uncouth uh, it shows you you are unsophisticated if you start bringing God and morality into the public square and public thought and discussions such as this. So I think um, you know, those those are things people could say, whether they're even Christians or not. I could see both non-Christians and professing Christians uh, raising things like that or saying they would cite Jesus and say, well, he said my kingdom is not of this world, therefore it's not supposed to manifest in this way. It's merely spiritual. Of course, we know that's not the case. Psalm 2 makes claims. Christ himself, it says, kiss the son, and that's speaking to, to kings. So I think that such questions betray something of an ignorance of some of these passages of Scripture and, and principles from Scripture. It's not to say we need to beat these people over the head, but... Um, it is a real problem. So I, I think it's very helpful, Cody. Michael, I want to ask you this question. So one of the things that I'm sure is, is close to the heart of every Christian who is sensitive to biblical ethics is the murder of unborn children through abortion. Mm. Or un, unborn children through abortion. And this would be an area where we would think that that um, there is a self-evident principle here. You do not kill, you do not murder uh, an image bearer of God. This is the sixth commandment, of course. And uh, it seems as though for many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, there is a sincere belief that they can uphold that principle. They can promote that principle in the public sphere and they can, um, in a coherent and a principled way, stand against abortion. On, because it is against the law of God, while at the same time uh, believing that the first table of the law, the first four commandments, are are not to be contended for in the same way. Now, do you think there is a relationship in American, Canadian, Western history in the surrendering of the first table and what we're seeing is the collapse of the second table? Yes. Yes, I certainly think so. Paul tells us of that in Romans chapter 1. That the reason men are given over to all manner of unspeakable second, command, second table violations like sodomy is because they did not honor God as God. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, which would describe every false religion. And so for a Christian not to trace that back, to see abortion, but not recognize that much worse things laid the groundwork for this, that the reason we're slaughtering our offspring is because we have forsaken God, and therefore he's forsaken us justly. We are missing something so important. We need to recognize that when you go to the abortion clinic, as I hope many do, you protest there. When you see the papists praying their rosary in front of the abortion clinic, that that is a greater offense to God than the murder of infants because it touches him more directly. It is prior in the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. They're breaking the First and the Second Commandments. And we ought to have more zeal to see that kind of blasphemy and superstition suppressed than even the murder of the unborn, though that certainly should be suppressed. And I believe that's how God thinks of these things. And it even fits with what Christ told, told us as a basic principle of the Christian life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in all other things or as he spoke to us about the soul he said what 
is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We care for the bodies, especially of innocent babies. But a man's soul, which the state of which is determined by his relationship to God through Christ, that is all the more precious. And things that harm that are worse. It is worse when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house to evangelize you and your family than if a man came with a gun to threaten their lives because he's come to murder your soul rather than your body. Thank you, brother. I think this is something that we, we need to hear as Christians because we are saturated with an atmosphere and a culture of unbelief a really cultural and political atheism. And we can't imagine that this has left us unaffected, right? But by the grace of God, we are going to be slipping in exactly this way. I mean, here in Canada, for example, uh, in the, the late 20th century, there were two pivotal Supreme Court decisions uh, that were adopted in the aftermath of the, the ratification of the um, Human Rights Act, or the, the Charter of Human Rights, I should say. And one of them, that the, the piece of legislation in our country that was deemed unconstitutional was the Lord's Day Act, that piece of legislation which mandated this, the observance of the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath throughout the country. That was, uh, that was struck down as unconstitutional because it was the violation of the separation of church and state, according to the the Supreme Court's reckoning. And exactly around the same time, afterward, what you saw was in the Morgenthaler decision, there was also a decision that any legislation that either intentionally or by implication would stop the murder of unborn children at any age also violated the same principle, violation of separation of church and state. And every year, Christians and other people of goodwill, they do march in Ottawa, to commemorate the principle that there should be an abortion law. But there is not nowhere near the same level of desire that the Sabbath be honored. Even getting sometimes people in reformed churches to continue to uphold this principle is sometimes heartbreakingly difficult. And I think this shows exactly what you're saying, which is that our whole conscience has been skewed and there needs to be revival. There needs to be a return to the word of God in these things. So what I, I want to do now is um, look at a, a few biblical texts that I think especially uh, bear upon this in an important way. We have touched on a number of them, and I'm thankful, Cody, you mentioned Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 fits into a category of scripture, which are certainly prophecies of the new covenant, right? Um, but before we do that, I'd like to ask Michael to speak to a text that I know he was uh, suggesting we refer to, and that was Deuteronomy 13. And I don't know if I have time to go over the whole chapter, Michael, but could uh, you um, point us towards this chapter, read whatever you think would be a key part of it, and tell us why you think that this is the sort of wake-up call that perhaps the church needs to hear when we talk about biblical ethics and what we're going to call the establishment principle, the principle that the Christian religion should be established by civil power. Yes. Now, if I could give one text to support the whole concept in a nutshell, it would be Isaiah 49, 23, that kings shall be thy nursing fathers and queens thy nursing mothers. We could talk about that later. But the reason Deuteronomy 13 is so useful is because it puts a point on it, the point literally of the sword, in making it clear that in the one civil government that God himself established, we have the death penalty for egregious blasphemy and false religion. Now, I say egregious because God makes distinctions between someone merely himself led astray or having false opinions or even sharing them in a private circle and those who who um, turn away others from the faith. And that's especially what's in view 
here. So I'll just summarize the passage in Deuteronomy 13. It speaks first of a prophet or dreamer of dreams arising and saying, let us go after other gods. And it says in verse five that he shall be put to death. Then it goes on in verse six and says, if thy brother, the son of thy mother or thy son or thy daughter or the wife of thy bosom or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods. Verse eight, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And it goes on to speak as well of something when a whole city is led astray and it's proven to happen that that city would be destroyed. But I read those verses on purpose. God knows our hearts and how we, this is actually quite evil, take his attributes of kindness and mercy and love, which are true about him, not to be true of us. And we make them a reason to not do justice in this way. And he makes it crystal clear that that is an abuse of those concepts. It is not biblical kindness not to do justice on these most important matters. And people say, well, that's the Old Testament, but they don't realize that even if you grant that's the Old Testament and it's not relevant today, God did this and God was just. And therefore you cannot say in principle without blaspheming God that it is unjust for a government to punish false religion in this way. And many Christians have no idea what they're saying when they say that very thing. They impugn God who established a government to do this very thing. Now, then the question comes, does, how does this apply in the New Testament? And the argument is, is that, that those was it law for Israel, the principles, the more principles behind it still are sound and true from what we've spoken of, how the first table is the moral law, government is instituted to support the moral law. And so, yes, rightly so. Though the details might look different and we need wisdom to apply it in different circumstances, this kind of law is very proper to have in the New Testament. And this would be a very constant exegesis interpretation of this passage and others like it among the Reformed and the Reformed Orthodox most memorably in the case of John Calvin and Michael Servetus, who was burned to death in Geneva. And that was defended by Calvin himself, by his successor, Theodore Beza, and by the whole tradition of the Reformed faith well into the end of the 17th century. You can read it in Van Maastricht, him still defending this 150 years later. And, and there, there was... Uh... Among his false teaching, there was the denial of the Trinity was the central thing. That this was um, that this was a, such a, a pressing issue because he was seeking to overturn the Reform religion in the substitution of a of a false god, basically. And, yes, but let's make it clear for their yeah. to clear their name. Michael Servetus was a raging Trinitarian heretic who would not be silent and took every advantage possible to try to promote his evil after being warned and much, much patience applied to him. He continued to press it. This was his execution was the end of a very long and patient dealing with him. And he proved more and more incorrigible and open in his hatred and public blasphemy. So you, so what, I'm, uh, so, and when I look at the Reformed Orthodox, one of the emphases is that the love of a king for his people, it is comparable to the love of, of a father for his family, right? So when we would imagine a family with, um, with open idolatry in, in it, we would say this father is negligent. He doesn't love his family, right? And uh, what we would would want to say is that a government or a ruler that would tolerate such things that would 
lead to the damnation of, of souls, right? We cannot call this a loving king. We cannot, certainly, uh, it's not loving to God and then it's bringing dishonor to him, which I think is a prominent theme there in Deuteronomy 13. But we might miss is that um, it is it is not a mercy even to the people to tolerate such things. If we would imagine someone who was running around selling rat poison for medicine, right, which I think is an argument that Turton uses, um, then no one would say, well, of course, such a person should be stopped and even severely punished um, if uh, there's, especially if there's, they're incorrigible and not subject to correction. So how much more in spiritual things would be the argument? Um, you think that that's fair, Michael, or you think that's uh, that's a good way of thinking about it? I think that's right. As long as we recognize the analogy only as an analogy, it's actually far worse than rat poison. That's what we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, of course. I want to read um, a quotation from a man named Hendrik de Kock, which may not be a familiar name to many of our listeners, but the way I would uh, describe it is he's kind of the J. Gresham Machen of the free reformed churches because he was the one who was uh, removed from his pulpit for speaking the truth when the um, the Dutch state church was uh, going apostate, promoting liberalism, um, compromising the principle of exclusive psalmody and uh, some other things. But in the course of his speaking out against the, the decline, um, he was eventually removed from his pulpit, and that led to the formation of the uh, free reformed churches in in Holland in 1834 with the secession. And it's interesting that uh, some people imagine that because we're, we're called the free reformed churches, that in our history is a principled objection to what we would call national churches, churches that are established by the power of, of the law. But I want to listen to what Hendrik de Kock said in his foreword when he republished the Canons of Dort, which was, of course, a Reformed Confession uh, commit, uh, commissioned at a council uh, by the, the government as well. Uh, listen to what he says. Come then, friends, citizens, fellow countrymen, let us all take up the work of reformation and not look and not look at each other. Let each one confess your uprightness, humble yourself before God that you have thus kindled his wrath. Solemnly vow that by God's grace, you will hate what he hates, to love what he loves, and that you will choose his law as your rule and his glory as your goal. To this end, let us stir up and encourage and serve one another as to provoke each other to love and good works. And to this end, let us pray for the peace of Zion in Jerusalem. And he goes on to talk about, in particular, how the role of the, of the ruler, the king, is to be involved with this. He says, oh, it is to go, if it is to go well for the country, then God must be supreme. The Lord of glory must be Lord of that nation. If his blessing is to dwell there, then the king must recognize him as Lord, as the supreme king in everything. Then he must make sure that his subjects also acknowledge and reverence him and maintain and promote all that can serve to that end and oppose all that hinders. This is what our fathers did. The soul of God's service was the soul of the state from which everything proceeded and to which everything was directed. Our laws were grounded upon the internal, unchangeable law of Jehovah. The first and greatest commandment, the honor and service of the Lord, was the first law of our fathers, which was strongly maintained, in which the civil and military powers were both bound by oath to maintain. Adultery and the abuse of God's name were also restrained by laws. The other laws were also generally established according to the contents of the second table of the law, certainly not always perfectly, but yet as far as the main principle was concerned, answering to the purpose in view, namely the worship of God and the salvation and well-being of the people. So it's, I would also just add this, this last thing about Hendrik de Kock. When his church wrote... Um, about their statement, but why they were leaving the state church, why there was a secession, they uh, called their their public statement the act of secession or return, secession or return, and you can uh, read that document online at Spindleworks. Maybe we'll put a, a note there, but 
In that, they, they make very clear that if the Reformed Church, even the, the National Church, would return to the pure worship and doctrine of the confessions, then they would have no problem being part of the state church. Their, their desire to be free from that um, establishment was because it had become corrupt and apostate. And so they were not opposed to it in principle. It was because of the terrible state of decline among uh, the clergy and the abuse of power that they were witnessing. Mm. Um, but we're talking here about things that would seem revolutionary to many people today. Um, very countercultural to what what we expect. Um, now, you mentioned, I don't want to uh, leave this behind, Michael, but you mentioned a, a prophecy in Isaiah is also significant. Isaiah 49, 23, correct? Um, do you yes. want, me to read that? want me to read that or do you have it up? I'll read it. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Now the question is, who's being referred to by thy and thee? It's clear from the context, it's the church. It's the Old Testament church, which was largely Israelite. But this is and has been fulfilled even in the Gentile church. We pray it would be fulfilled in a renewed Israel, Israelite church one day. But this was fulfilled very plainly in the Reformation when many civil magistrates, the Senate and people of Geneva, for example, or Frederick the Wise with Martin Luther, they were nursing fathers to the church, giving to the church money, buildings, support, defense, all in a way proper to their civil office. They dealt in outward things, in earthly things, but not with an earthly end. They understood that the chief end of all flesh, including civil government, is the glory of God, and that that glory is served by a submission to and love for Christ, and that means a love for his church. So they, as civil magistrates, supported the Reformation to the point that today scholars, even unbelieving scholars, call the Protestant Reformation the Magisterial Reformation because it was funded by magistrates. As you mentioned with the Canons of Dort, with the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Confession, indeed, all the famous confessions of faith, not only in the Protestant church, but also in the early church, like the Nicene Creed, were, were written by men who were called by civil magistrates and who were on their payroll for that lengthy time they needed to devote to this. If we did not have in such men a fulfillment of this very passage, we would not have had our confessions of faith. We would not have had the Reformation. And yet here we are today, sitting on the branch and sawing it off. It's crazy. Yeah. Cody, um, I'd like you to, to speak to this. Um, when, when you think about your own, your own um, theological trajectory on this, and when you look at our brothers and sisters who, who may not be there yet. What do you think may be holding back as a sincere, a regenerate believer from seeing this as not only permissible, but really desirable and really eminently biblical when we think about the power of the state as it concerns the reformation and preservation of true religion? I can imagine many things. Um, the first thing is very simple. Christians are not reading their Bibles. There are many Christians that don't read their Bibles. So they don't read in particular the Old Testament where these principles are especially borne out. You see this with the godly kings and their reformations. You see this with Hezekiah. You see this with Josiah. You see it with Jehoshaphat. You see it with Asa. 
You could even say in some measure you see it with Solomon when he comes and he countenances the church. So that's the first thing. We just simply don't know our Bibles or we know those things, but we don't understand how that relates. And we think it's just mere history. No, that was the church in the Old Testament. The church did not begin in the New Testament, did not begin in Acts chapter 2. And uh, I know it's common parlance to call the post-apostolic church the early church, but I don't like that. The early church is Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham. Always has been. So that's a, that's another thing. We don't, we don't have a right, even if we do know some of these facts, we actually are not viewing them in their right light. What was going on with those kings is, is reformation made possible by them. Now, think about that. Does that square with our modern sentiment where we say, well, we just have to preach the gospel? Well, we certainly want to preach the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But what a glory it would be if God would raise up not just a Josiah, but Josiahs to countenance the church and to put down all these errors. That would be a glorious, wonderful thing. I want to see that. I pray for that. And when those men, if they come in our day, I want to rally behind them and encourage them. And we all ought to do that. You know, another thing may be social pressure. Maybe people are just afraid to say these things. They see, they see, oh, oh this this guy said something like that and he got whack-a-mold. We have to trust the Lord, you know. We don't, we don't want to worry about that. We have to trust the Lord. Um, and he'll take care of us. We own the truth. If we own his word, he says he will own us. Thank you, Cody. I think I think that's very helpful. And as you're talking, I was, I was my mind was brought to a text that has been very encouraging to me, particularly think, since I came into the ministry. The great commission given by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, all power. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the world. Much, much could be said about that. I think that the issue of all power in earth, period, given unto Christ, is important we can't say there's any any power that is not under the lordship of christ but i think also what is maybe sometimes lost is that the calling is to disciple the nations so i think one of the reasons why people uh who are even sincere christians don't follow us yet on this principle is because of the enlightenment and one of that is a very radically individualist way of thinking and so the idea of corporate responsibility, corporate identity um, is, uh, is certainly in the scriptures where it speaks about discipling the nations. We need to understand that um, that is speaking of a comprehensive mission over uh, all the different people groups in their, in their corporate um, identities and that they are all to be subordinated unto the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And yes, recognizing, of course, that that is the work of God in Christ as the kingdom of grace expands. But uh, we ought to be looking at how that has happened in history, how the Lord has blessed um, the Reformation and other great works of his spirit in the past. It has, as, as Michael has, has explained very well, and you have as well, um, entailed civil power because how could it not how could um you have a, such an important uh, part of our nature as human beings uh, that is essential to our good and flourishing not be brought under the banner of christ i mean i think it's very self-evident um so this is uh obviously an episode where we can't cover everything we can't uh, cover everything in one episode. We are wanting, I think, in this episode to have laid some groundwork, and I think we have. Um, perhaps what would be good at this point is to give some 
practical applications just in closing. Perhaps some people may have followed with our argument and are convicted that this is a true and biblical principle. And what I'd, I'd like us to avoid is maybe such an overwhelming sense of the, of the task and calling that we become paralyzed. It seems to me that if, if this is true and God's people um, have a calling as far as they are engaged in politics to bring this about, there has to be some, some way in which we can realize this, this calling even today where we realize that our nations are so far gone. And Michael, I wonder, uh, without saying everything that could be said, what would be one or two things you would leave our audience with to, to take home? This is good. We can be paralyzed because none of us are civil magistrates or most of us aren't. And we feel at a loss to change our civil magistrates. Well, we might have more influence than we think. And there are plenty of things we can do politically. There's ways to influence and such. But I think the most important thing is to recognize the principle of the establishment of religion is that even natural things, natural communities, natural kingdoms ought to be devoted to a spiritual end. And the state is not the only natural community. Another very important one is the family. And the analogy of state and family you've already made, the king is like a father of his country. But fathers, you're like kings of your country. And this should fill your soul with a holy zeal to see that your kingdom is ruled for Jesus Christ to exercise the true domestic power that you have within its God-given limits, but within those limits with a true authority you've been invested by God with. You are a minister of God for the good of your people under you. And their greatest good is not to be healthy and wealthy, though you have an interest in that. Their greatest good is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to be godly. And you can talk all you want about this ideal of the American president eventually being a Christian and changing all of our laws and such, and wouldn't that be great? But if you are not today applying these principles in your life, then that's just idle speculation. You need to establish the Christian religion in your homes. And if anything will help us in our nation, certainly it's that. That's not a small thing for the political community as well, for families to be doing that. Thank you, Michael. I, I think that's exactly a, an important note that we need to take, uh, take home. And, and Cody, can you think of something that you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I can think of two things. Uh, the first thing is to pray First Timothy 2, Paul, it commands us, pray for kings, those in authority, that we may live peaceful and, and godly lives. So pray for that, but pray also for the magistrate to uphold his duties, which is there implied. And if they will not do so, pray for new magistrates who will. We have not because we ask not. Secondly, I would say do the reading. Get to work and read. The materials out there, we have the Bible. I think the Old Testament especially is useful for this, but it's not exclusive. There are many principles throughout the New Testament as well. And I would say, as you're able, read our Reformed Fathers. There are smaller works that treat of the subject that are available as well. Yes, I think... That's very good, brother. And I think the, the only thing I would add, not taking away from those things you brothers have said, is that I think we have the responsibility as the Lord gives us light and opportunity to speak to these things, to speak. Sometimes it may seem as though it's a thankless task to uh, take the role of the prophets uh, speaking out against ungodliness in our temporary society. But if the Lord's people will do not will not do that, then then we it is to our shame because the lord has called us precisely to do that to be the city on a hill to be salt and light 
And directly after that exhortation, he says in Matthew 5, think not that I haven't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot, one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called the least of the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. It's as I think we hold firm to the word of God, the law to the prophets, as it is also interpreted through the, the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are salt and light. And precisely to that extent, that we compromise, we do fall under the, the Lord's uh, sentence here. And so I hope this will stir us up to be convicted where perhaps we have been silent. But as the Lord gives us opportunity to speak the truth and love and firmness, but also with zeal and urgency, because the hours that the Lord gives us here are not to be wasted, but to put to his glory. So with that, I think we've, we've uh, brought this discussion to a close. I want to thank you. Uh, both brothers very much for joining us with uh, uh, discussion until next time listeners the lord be with you and the lord guide you into all truth